No grand illustration this morning. To start us off, we're going to jump right into our text. Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18 is the text for this morning. The sermon title is A Hunger for God. Let me encourage you to stand if you have the ability as we read God's Word together. This is Matthew recording Jesus' teaching under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And these are the words that he pens. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. Well, fasting is the third area. It follows giving. If you can remember our study back a few weeks ago in verses uh, 2 through 4, what Jesus is teaching us here is he's teaching us how not to practice righteousness in a way that is only to be seen by those on the outside, but instead to do it out of the heart, to do it out of worship, to do it out of an honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus began teaching about how we are to give. In other words, we're not to toot our own horns, we're not to let the right hand know what the left hand is doing, or vice versa. Our giving is to be done in secret. Our giving is to be done from a heart that longs to be generous and longs to honor and glorify God. Secondly, Jesus took up the issue of our praying. He did that in verses 5 through 15. Likewise, he said that we're, we're not to pray just to be seen. We saw that the, the Pharisees, they, they would time their commutes so that they would be on the most prominent street corner at the moment they were to pray so that they would garner the attention and the gazing eye of others had no intention of honoring God, had no intention of prayer being a means of worship to God. It was only to be seen. And then what Jesus did is he, he split his teaching in kind of a parenthesis. We see that in verses 9 uh, through 15 there. And Jesus teaches us as believers how we are to pray. How we are to pray. Remember, we're to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, set apart be your name, transcendent is your name. You are other than, but you're yet our Father. We can entreat you, we can come before you, you long to hear your children. We're to pray that his kingdom would come, his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, that he would would provide for us, that the very one who created us would sustain us with daily bread. We are so dependent, moment by moment, dependent upon Him. I need the every hour. We forget that, do we not? Because most of our basic needs just take place. We want for very little. Jesus says, we're to pray, give us this day, Lord. Keep us dependent by asking for our daily bread. Forgive us as we've also forgiven our debtors, recognizing that we're sinners in need of forgiveness from the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and then subsequently as forgiven sinners, believers, Christians, we should be the most forgiving people on the face of the planet because of the immensity of the debt, the sin debt that has been forgiven us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We talked about temptation, about the fact that we are more prone to fall than we think we are. We're not as strong as we think we are. Pray that the Lord would not lead us into places uh, that we would 
would rush headlong into sin but would protect us. We know he does. We have that great, great promise in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, right? No temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful. When you're tempted, he won't be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he'll provide a way of escape that you may stand up under it. Temptation, though, it's around every single corner. Be watchful. Be vigilant. Eyes wide open, like the deer crossing the meadow. He hears every, every rustle of the leaf, every snap of the twig, every footprint that is laid to the ground. He's vigilant. Eyes wide open. So Jesus brought up the issues of our giving and our praying. And now Jesus brings up the third and last issue here as far as practicing our, practicing our righteousness is concerned. And that issue is the issue of fasting. This is the last issue for which Jesus gives correction to the hypocritical and religious uh, leaders of his day. You know, I was thinking about this this week in my study, and I must confess to you, the, the subject matter before us this morning, your pastor is not proficient in. I fail when it comes to fasting. I fail to think about it. I fail to to, to use this particular means of grace as a way to strengthen prayer just as Jesus taught us to do in his word. I think fasting is probably one of the most misunderstood and subsequently the most neglected of the spiritual disciplines. I mean, we've, we've got, at least for the most part, to varying degrees, obviously, but, but we've got somewhat of a handle on spending daily time in the word. Whether that's in the morning, the afternoon, or the evening, uh, some sort of daily devotional time, whether it's reading a devotional time, whether it's a Bible study that you've broken into parts, but, but just digging in, diving in the Word of God, unearthing the riches that are there to be mined. Prayer. None of us would say that we pray as we ought, that we pray as often as we ought, that, that, we, that we don't tell people we're going to pray for them and then walk right away and forget. None of us would say that we're perfect in that discipline, but we probably have a better handle on it than we do fasting. Evangelism would be another spiritual discipline. Again, we're all practicing that to varying degrees across the congregation here, but if I had to take a guess, I would venture to say that our evangelism is probably stronger than our fasting is. I think fasting is one of the most misunderstood and subsequently one of the most neglected spiritual disciplines in the Christian life. Let me ask you this question, friends. What do you think about when you think about fasting? What do you think about when you think about fasting? Do you think about being miserable? Do you think about the super spiritual or the fanatic for Jesus? Do you think about the Catholic Church? Do you think about Lent? Do you think about losing weight? I mean, we all have pre- conceptions when it comes to the spiritual discipline of fasting. Did you know that fasting is mentioned more times in the Bible than baptism? We can probably articulate baptism pretty well. It's significant, it's meaning, what it pictures. Did you know that fasting is mentioned more times in the Bible, 75 to 73-ish, depending on how you count? It's mentioned more times than baptism in the Bible. I mean, during Old Testament times, many faithful believers fasted Moses, Samson, Samuel, Hannah, David, Elijah, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Daniel, and many, many others. The New Testament tells us of the fasting of Anna, John the Baptist, and his disciples, Jesus, Paul, and numerous others. We know of many uh, down through church history uh, that have fasted. Martin Luther, John Calvin, Wesley, Whitfield, and many other outstanding Christian leaders and missionaries. 
What do we know about fasting? What do we know about it in our own lives? What I want to do here for just a second is I want to just give you kind of an understanding that Scripture presents to us of fasting across the Testaments. In other words, how was fasted viewed in the Old Testament? How was it viewed in the New Testament? I think as we look at the Old Testament, as uh, at least looking at it in broad strokes, we see that penitence and fasting went together. They, they were a pair in the Old Testament. You see, the, the purpose of fasting in the Old Testament was entirely different from the purpose of fasting in the New Testament. Did you even know that? The purpose of fasting in the Old Testament was entirely different than the purpose of fasting in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we see that fasting was connected to repentance and a mourning over sin. I mean, the entire Hebrew nation was commanded. As a matter of fact, it was the only command, the only explicit command to fast in the Bible was that the Hebrew nation was commanded to fast before the Day of Atonement. That they would mourn over their sin. That it would be connected with repentance you see, this was the day that the Jews mourned over their sin, that they, that they looked for the reconciliation, albeit temporary, that God provided through the sacrifices all throughout the Old Testament. It was from this practice, though, that the discipline of fasting spread to other facets of life. We see fasting in, in many, many places in the Old Testament. Here are just a few, though. We, we see fasting practiced after Jonah's preaching. Remember, Jonah goes reluctantly to the wicked, sinful city of Nineveh, against his own will. We know the story. And when he gets there, he preaches. He preaches the gospel. He preaches repentance. In Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown, or Nineveh will be destroyed. And the response, the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Upon hearing, hearing of God's judgment, his impending judgment for their wickedness and their sin, Nineveh repents and they do so in a display of fasting. We see fasting at the revival that came to pass under the preaching of the prophet Samuel. We see fasting at the death of Saul and Jonathan uh, being practiced in, in a sense of mourning over the death of Saul and Jonathan. We see fasting taking place as a response to disaster in the Old Testament. Joel chapter 2 is one instance of this. It says, Yet even now declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart and with fasting, with weeping and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Ber- We've said this many times, God is much more concerned about what goes on inside of you than what we do on the outside. Now, that's not a false dichotomy. He's concerned about both, obviously. But think here from from Joel. Return with all your heart with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Joel chapter 2. But we see a, a fasting in response to Disaster. So in response to the preaching of the gospel and impending judgment, in response to the revival that took place under the prophet Samuel, in response to the death of individuals in the Old Testament, such as Saul, Jonathan, and many others, and then in response to natural disaster, we see that penitence, though characterized fasting, a mourning over sin, characterized fasting by and large throughout the Old Testament. But when we get to the New Testament, 
there is a bit of a change in emphasis. We see that fasting now is practiced as a means or as a way of seeking God's direction in the New Testament. Fasting and seeking of the Lord, seeking Him in intimacy and seeking His will and guidance in direction, that is what we see taking place predominantly in the New Testament. You see, after Jesus came, fasting was conceived of very differently. Certainly, the early Christians were aware of their sins. They were aware of the fact that they had been forgiven by Christ at the cross, and therefore they didn't mourn over their sins in the same way that those Old Testament saints did because they were post-cross, not pre-cross. Did they mourn over their sin? Absolutely they did. Should we mourn over our sin? Absolutely we should. All we need to do is go back to the Beatitudes to see that. Blessed are those who mourn, who are broken, who are humble and contrite when they realize the debt of sin they have before a thrice holy God. It ought to break our hearts. So we're not saying that New Testament Christians did not mourn over their sin. We're just saying that fasting took on a different nuance in the New Testament because it was after the cross. It was after the cross. Really, there's only a handful of places that that Jesus even talks about fasting in the New Testament. One is our text here in front of us, where he deals with the the outward show of fasting. And the second place uh, is in Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 and 15. This might be familiar to you. You don't need to turn there. but, But some of John the Baptist's disciples come to him, and they ask him the question, Jesus We fast, and the Pharisees fast. Why is it that your disciples do not fast? And Here's how Jesus answers that question. Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? That is, can believers mourn as long as I am with them? The days will come when I, the bridegroom, am taken away from them, and then they will fast. You see, the disciples didn't fast prior to this because fasting implied sorrow and mourning and the years of Jesus' ministry were not characterized by mourning and sorrow. They were characterized by joy and by growing. Remember, it was after Jesus was taken that his disciples began to mourn and Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, hey, guys, I'm sending you another. I'm sending you a paraclete. I'm sending you the spirit that will be with you, that will comfort you. Lift up your droopy head. Lift up your droopy eyes. The mourning began to take place after Jesus' departure from the scene. But that question was asked to Jesus, why don't your disciples fast? And Jesus says, there's coming a day where they will fast. And that is the time that characterizes the parentheses between Jesus' departure and his second return. Friends, we are in that period. We would refer to that as the church age. It's where we are today. The time between Jesus' departure, his ascension into heaven, and his second return. That's where we are today. Well, before we say too much more about fasting, let's define it. We saw how it is characterized in the New Testament, particularly with penance, mourning over sin. We see how it's characterized in the New Testament, and we'll see this more as we go. But it's a seeking seeking intimacy with the Lord, seeking His guidance and His will and His direction. It's oftentimes accompanied with prayer. But what is fasting anyway? How would we define it? Well, strictly speaking, fasting is to abstain for food for a period of time in order to seek the Lord. If you wanted a a definition of fasting in a nutshell, in one sentence, I would define it as abstaining from food for a period of time in order to seek the Lord. 
It's a display of humility as we approach God with the realization that we're dependent upon him for life and breath and being. John Stott says this, he says, To fast and to humble ourselves before God are virtually equivalent terms. To fast, to abstain for food for a period of time in order to seek the Lord, and to humble ourselves before the Lord are virtually indistinguishable terms. They are equivalent terms. You see, fasting is a way for us to set aside the normal distractions of this life in order to pursue intimacy with God and to seek His clear direction for our lives. We oftentimes pray when we're seeking the Lord's clear direction for our lives. We ask Him, God, would you make your will known? Sometimes He makes His will known. As a matter of fact, everything you read in God's Word is God's will made known. We call God's Word His revealed will. God has a side or a facet of his will which is not revealed to us. And so we ask, God, what what is your will? What is your desire for me for the future, for whom I might marry, for what direction I might take in in a vocation, uh, for a particular ministry opportunity, even as church leadership, before we would bring an individual into a, a position of ministry, It would be appropriate at times to to fast, to seek the Lord in that way. To set aside the normal distractions of life in order to pursue intimacy with God and to seek His clear direction for our lives. Now, while fasting in Scripture is confined to food, that's the context we see it practiced throughout the Bible, I don't think that it is constrained to food. In other words, in a strict sense, the Bible only refers to fasting in terms of its primary usage. That's abstinence from food. But I think we could make a case, I think we could certainly make a case for fasting being legitimate from other things. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this, he says, Fasting must not be confined to the question of food and drink alone. Though again, that is the primary context which we see it in Scripture. Fasting should really be made to include abstinence from anything legitimate, that's anything that's not sinful in and of itself, for the sake of a spiritual purpose. In other words, we can fast from from sources of media, television. Uh, We can fast from computer. We can fast from a cell phone. Not, Not just for any old arbitrary reason, but so that the effort and the time and the energy that would be used and focused on those things can be redirected for a spiritual purpose. That I would would forego the time that I spent using those devices or engaging in those things as a means primarily to seek the Lord. It's not just cutting out things in order to look spiritual, but it's cutting out things so that I can use that time, that energy, for other purposes, namely seeking the Lord. We can fast from sleep. I would suggest, myself included, that we would do well to fast from sleep more often than we do. I think we encourage, myself included, slothfulness more than we do a disciplined lifestyle. Anything that connects us to earth that can be set aside for a period of time that we might spend that time in spiritual activity can be characterized or categorized, rather, as legitimate fasting. Legitimate fasting. Now, let me say this. We're going to make our way back to the text here in just a minute. There is a significant difference between fasting and discipline, what we would refer to as just general self-discipline. 
They are not the same thing. Okay? There's a difference between fasting and discipline. We need to make that distinction between spiritual discipline and what we would call self-control. There are plenty of things that we should do just because they're honoring to God. Some people have looked at verses like 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, verse 27, where Paul says, I discipline my body or I beat my body and I keep it under control. I make it my slave. Verses like that is supporting fasting. And I think that keeping our bodies under control is certainly important, obviously, but verses like that don't have anything to do with fasting. It could be applied to moderation, right? But moderation isn't the same as fasting. Discipline and self-control are perpetual. They're, they're permanent. Those should be ongoing things. I should, I should, on an ongoing basis, be disciplining myself, uh, uh, becoming more and more self-controlled, right? The grace of God has appeared, Titus chapter 2. It teaches me to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright lives in this present age, okay? We should always be growing in being self-controlled and in being disciplined. But there is a distinction between self-control and discipline and the spiritual exercise of fasting for spiritual purposes, namely, seeking God's abiding presence and his leading, And so I would say that it's wrong or it's incorrect to reduce fasting merely to the self-discipline process, okay? So you need to know those are two distinct things, okay? Let's talk first this morning about fasting for wrong reasons. Fasting for wrong reasons. Look back at your text here. I'm not going to say a ton uh, about what Jesus says in the text here, uh, concerning fasting and its, its incorrectness or its inappropriateness. And the reason I'm not going to say a ton about that is because Jesus says the same thing about fasting that he said about our giving and he said about our praying. In other words, we're not to do it to be seen. It's not just to be some external religious activity that we, that we use as a means to garner the gazing eye of other individuals that we might appear to be more spiritual. Obviously, that's wrong. If we're doing what we're doing and we're motivated by someone else other than Christ, it's wrong. It's wrong. But let's look at some other wrong reasons for fasting. If you're taking notes, you might want to jot this down. It's wrong to fast if you're fasting to try and earn God's favor by your fasting. Fasting is not meritorious. Most of us are aware of the parable that Jesus taught when he condemned those who trusted in their self-righteousness and treated others with contempt. Remember, Jesus said this, two men, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this way, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector right here, for I fast twice a week. Well, pin a rose on your nose. I give tithes of all I get. Yet the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. If we're fasting, if we're doing anything we're doing as believers to try and gain God's favor, it is wrong. We don't work on a system of merits. We work on a system of grace. The system of merit that we work on has been finished and completed at the cross. John chapter 19, Jesus hung his head and he said, it's finished. His work was victorious. His work was meritorious for the Father. 
But if we're doing what we're doing to try and earn God's favor, it is wrong. That would be fasting for the wrong reasons. Secondly, we fast for the wrong reasons if we try and coerce God into answering our prayers or try to coerce God to acting on our behalf by our fasting. You see, fasting is not a spiritual hunger strike. We, we're not holding signs at the door of heaven, so to speak, forcing God to act. I'm not eating until you. That's silly. That's silly. We must also understand that fasting doesn't ensure instant results. We can't demand that just because I fasted, now God, you must fill in the blank. When we fast and pray, we're to do so to be attentive to God's voice, not in a mystical way, God's leading, his direction, his guidance, but to be attentive to God's voice, not to twist his arm. Some people have this penny in the slot type view of fasting. You put your penny in the slot, you pull out the drawer, and there you have your result. You see, friends, God oftentimes chooses to, but God is never obligated to bless us. He oftentimes chooses to, but he is never obligated to bless us. We fast for the wrong reason if we fast to try to coerce God into answering our prayers or into acting in any way on our behalf. The moment that we begin to think, because we do this, we get that, it means that we think we're in control of God's blessings. Third, we fast for the wrong reasons if we fast confusing fasting as a substitute for repentance. If we confuse fasting as a substitute for repentance, then we turn the discipline of fasting into a form of penance. In other words, I'm somehow paying for my sin. Friends, we can't add a single drop in the bucket to paying for our sin. That's why we need a Redeemer, Savior, Messiah in the first place. Lastly, we fast for the wrong reasons, and this gets back to the text here again, if we try and impress others with our spirituality. We're doing what we're doing just to try to impress others with our spirituality, then we are fasting or fill in the blank with any other spiritual discipline for that matter for the wrong reasons. God is after our hearts when we fast. Look at verse 16 again. Jesus said, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. You see, just as the Pharisees gave in to being seen, uh, praying, and they stopped in the most prominent places so they would be uh, noticed, so also they intentionally disfigured themselves when they fasted so that everyone would know. What Jesus says, when, when, when Jesus says, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting may not be seen by others, all Jesus is saying in verse 17 and 18 there is do what's normal. Take a bath. Groom yourself. Take care of yourself so that you don't look gloomy and in despair when you walk out. Just do what is normal. You see, what the Pharisees were doing here is they were doing that which is not normal. They weren't taking care of themselves so as to look a particular way. We fast for the wrong reasons if we fast to try and impress others with our spirituality. See, the purpose of fasting is not to advertise ourselves, but it's to discipline ourselves. Not to gain a reputation for ourselves, but to express our humility before God. I was thinking about this this week in my study as well. Fasting reveals what controls you. Fasting has a unique way of revealing that which oftentimes controls us. 
You see, fasting is a reminder that we don't live to eat, but rather we eat to live. Our bodily appetites aren't our God. Fasting reminds us that God is first. John Piper notes this. He says, Christian fasting is a test to see what desires control us. Fasting reveals the measure of food's mastery over us, or television, or computers, or whatever we submit to again and again. And here's the kicker, to conceal the weakness of our hunger for God. You see, we oftentimes fill in what's lacking in our hunger for God with lesser cheap substitutes. Whether it's television, or the telephone, or social media, or video games, or even those things that are necessary for the sustaining of life, such as eating. Fasting reveals what controls us. I want you also to notice that fasting is expected. Fasting is not, it's not commanded outside of the one instance before the Day of Atonement in Scripture, but it is expected. I think as we look at Jesus' words here in Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18, we see that Jesus expects that we be fasting. Matter of fact, look at the text here. Just as Jesus said about giving, and just as Jesus said about praying, he says, when you fast, not if you fast. When you pray, pray like this. When you give, give in this manner. When you fast, fast in this manner. And so though it is not explicitly commanded, even by Jesus himself, I think we can make a clear biblical argument for the fact that Jesus certainly expects us as believers to be accompanying our prayer life with fasting. Now, many different types of fasts we see in the Bible, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. And though these particular categories are not given to them, let me, let me share with you some of the types of fasting that we see in the Bible The first type of fasting that we see in the Bible is what we would refer to as a normal fast. This is abstaining from food, but not from water. So we would refer to as a normal fast. We see this in in Jesus' own life. Before the inauguration of Jesus' public ministry, he fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And it says, and then he was hungry. Matthew chapter 4, verse 2. But Matthew doesn't say anything about Jesus being thirsty. We don't know what took place in the desert there. But because Matthew doesn't record anything about Jesus being thirsty, I think we can make a biblical argument for the fact that Jesus probably drank during that time. He fasted for food for 40 days and 40 nights. It's what we refer to as a normal fast, to abstain from food but not from water. And then we see partial fasts in the Bible. This is a restriction of diet rather than a total abstinence of food. We see this in Daniel chapter 10, for instance. Daniel said, I ate no delicacies, no meat or no wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for three full weeks. He says, I cut out a portion of my diet. I fasted from these particular things. We would call that a partial fast. We see absolute fasts in the Bible. That's abstaining from all food and all water for a short period of time. Esther fasted in this way. Remember, she said, go and gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, a night or a day. And I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king 
though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. That's an absolute fast. No food, no water. There are other instances of that in the Bible, but we see it clearly there in Esther. We see it again in Paul, Acts chapter 9, at his conversion at the Damascus Road. He rose from the ground. Although his eyes were opened, Luke writes, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and he neither ate nor drank. It'd be an absolute fast. No food, no water. Another category of fasts we see in the Bible are supernatural fasts. We see two instances of this in the Bible. A supernatural fast is a fast that is outside the normal limitations of the human body. Uh, we see it first in Moses, right? goes to Mount Sinai. Moses writes, When I went up on the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord made with you, I remained on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. Moses could not have done this if he was not supernaturally enabled by God. I mean, most physicians would tell you that we can live somewhere in the ballpark of three to four days without water. This is a supernatural occurrence. We see it once in Moses. We see it once in Elijah. After being pursued by Jezebel, Elijah, fearful for his life, he, he journeys, he flees into the wilderness where in discouragement he collapses under a tree. Samuel recounts the story in 1 Kings chapter 19. It says that Elijah laid down to sleep under a broom tree and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water, and he ate and he drank and he lay back down again. And then the angel of the Lord came to him a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank. And then he went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to the mount of God. Those are supernatural fasts. Unless God steps in and sustains the body, those types of fasts could not be repeated. We see congregational fasts in the Bible. This is a fast that's instituted within an assembly of believers. The church at Antioch worshipped and fasted before sending Paul and Barnabas out on their first preaching tour. It'd be a congregational fast. The, the church came together and they agreed to fast for a period of time before sending out missionaries to preach the gospel. It says that after praying and after fasting, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. That would be a congregational fast. We see some national fasts in the Bible. Throughout Scripture, we have examples of an entire nation seeking God in a time of crisis. One instance of this would be after Jonah again preached to the city of Nineveh, the king declared a fast so that God might spare them from the destruction that Jonah had warned was coming as a result of their wickedness. And Jonah records this saying, The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, he removed his robe, he covered himself with sackcloth and ashes, and he issued a proclamation and published it throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and the nobles, let no man or beast or herd or flock taste anything. Be a national fast. All of this nation together will come together and fast. And then we see private fast. Again, these, these particular subheadings would not be found in your Bible, but as a way to, to categorize them, I think this is helpful. Lastly, we see private fasts. This takes place between the believer and the Lord. This is what Jesus is talking about in our text here in Matthew chapter 6. It would be a private fast. When Jesus says, you are to fast not to be seen by others. It's between you and the Lord. And if you fast in that manner, there is reward from the Lord himself for you. 
be a private fast. Most of our fasting, friends, probably comes in the categories of uh, normal, partial, uh, maybe absolute, where we don't drink any water or don't have any food. Uh, They're private, and they're for a specific, shorter duration of time. So, let's answer this question then. For what purposes should believers fast? Remember, what is fasting? Strictly speaking, in the Bible, it's abstaining for food for a period of time that we might take that time to to pursue the Lord, to pursue intimacy with the Lord, to pursue His will and His guidance and His direction. We said it's not limited to food, though, although that is the prevailing context we see it coming to us in Scripture. But for what purposes should believers fast? Hopefully this will bring the wheels down to the ground a little bit here and give us a little bit of application this morning. Okay? Why fast? Why? Let me give you a handful of reasons. This would be a good place to continue taking notes if you are doing so. Number one, it's right to fast in order that we would give more attention to earnestness in our prayers. It's right to fast in order that we would give more more attention to earnestness in our prayers. You see, fasting is the best friend of prayer. You can pray without fasting, but you cannot fast biblically without praying. There's something about prayer that sharpens the edge, or something about fasting, rather, that sharpens the edge of our prayer lives and gives earnest passion to our petitions. When we go without food, when we go without water for a period of time, it seems to sharpen, to sharpen the edge of our prayer lives and to give earnest passion to our petitions. Fasting expresses a solemnness and an urgency to our prayers. Here's why. Because if we continue to fast, eventually we would die. You cannot fast indefinitely. If we continued to fast, eventually we would die. Therefore, in a symbolic way, fasting says to God that we are prepared to lay down our lives. That the situation in front of us, whatever it may be, or the direction, or the will, or your guidance that I'm seeking, in some way, be revealed. Secondly, it's right to fast in order to express a repentant heart. So not only to to give more attention to earnestness in our prayers, to sharpen our prayer life, to sharpen the focus of our prayer life, secondly, it's right to fast in order to express a repentant heart. Though we, we see that as being the predominant theme in the Old Testament, that does not in any way, shape, or form mean that it should not be a predominant theme in our fasting today post Resurrection. It's right to fast in order to express a repentant heart. God blessed Jonah's preaching with great, with a great spiritual awakening. Remember, upon hearing him preach, the people of Nineveh they believed God. They called for a national fast. We're repentant. We're, we want to to change our ways. We want to turn from our wickedness. After hearing the book of the law read by Ezra in Nehemiah chapter 8, Israel was distressed over its sin. Nehemiah writes this, Day by day, from the first day to the last day, he, that's Ezra, read the book of the law of God. And they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with the earth on their heads. 
It is right to fast in conjunction or in connection with our repentance. We're not adding to our repentance. We're just showing ourselves to be humble in our expression of repentance. I mentioned this several times already, but it's right to fast in order to seek God's guidance and will. Maybe a particular issue where you're, you're asking God to reveal his will to you, to give you guidance, direction, or leadership in your life. It's right to fast in order to seek God's guidance and his will. Now, it's important to note that just because we fast, it doesn't mean that God is going to clearly reveal his will. Remember, we're not forcing him, we're not coercing him, we're not, we're not pushing him back in a corner and demanding that he act on our behalf. Having said that, it certainly makes us more receptive to the one who loves to guide us when we accompany prayer for God's guidance with fasting. Next, it's right to fast when God seems to have temporarily, let me emphasize temporarily, hidden his face. It's right for us to believers to fast when God seems to temporarily have hidden his face. A familiar psalm to probably most of you is Psalm chapter 42, verses 1 through 3. David speaking here. After being taunted by his enemies and feeling as if God was unaware, he cries out. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I come and appear before God? And then he says this. He says, my tears have been my food day and night. It's right to fast when God seems to have temporarily hidden his face. It's right to fast in order to communicate grief. We can accompany our our grief and our prayer in times of grief with fasting. Throughout Scripture, we see fasting as an appropriate response in times of sorrow and grief. I think about when David caused the, or when God rather caused the firstborn child of Bathsheba, uh, conceived by David, to become severely ill. David fasted while he pleaded for the infant's life, despite the fact that the prophet Nathan told him that the child would die. Second Samuel chapter twelve recounts the story. It says, And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick, that is, the child. David, therefore, as a result, sought God on behalf of the child. And as David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground, the elders of the house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not. He would not eat food with them. A few verses later, David said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether God might be gracious to me? And the child might live. It's an appropriate way to express grief before the Lord. Or to accompany grief and prayer with fasting. It's right to fast in order to display our desperation and dependence upon the Lord. Just a way of communicating. God, I'm dependent upon you. I'm desperate for you. If you were to remove your spirit, the Old Testament tells us we would return to dust. Just a way to communicate our desperation and our dependence upon the Lord. It's right to fast in order that we might overcome temptation. Right? We see this in Jesus' life and ministry. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights in order that he might overcome the onslaught of temptation from from the onset of his ministry through to Gethsemane. It's right to fast in order to overcome temptation. Now, does that mean that if I fast, I won't succumb to temptation? It doesn't. It doesn't guarantee that. 
It's right to fast in order to heighten our spiritual alertness and our sense of God's abiding presence. You see, when we fast, our minds and our perception get sharper because we're focusing less on the temporal things and more on eternal realities. We're not rushing through our prayer. Our souls and our hearts become more alert. There's just a few reasons. That's by no means an exhaustive list, but of times when it's right, times when it's appropriate to fast. Remember, it's, it's not appropriate to fast to, to try and gain uh, merit with God. It's not right to try and fast in order to be seen by others. We don't add anything to our salvation. It's not right to fast to try to back God into a corner, but here are some legitimate reasons that fasting might accompany our prayer as believers. Jesus expects it, though he never commands it. Friends, how are we doing there? What do we know? We live in a world that knows very little about denying self. But interestingly enough, what was it that Jesus told his disciples in Luke 9.23? If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. You see, fasting is one of those ways that we can sharpen the discipline of denying self. You see, we're so used to the first time the body calls, the first time the body rings, the first time the body craves feeding it what it wants. And fasting is a way to discipline ourselves so that we might use whatever it is we're fasting from. And we're not just fasting arbitrarily, but to use that time and that energy and that effort from whatever we're fasting from that we might pour it into pursuing the Lord. What's the ultimate purpose of fasting as we land the plane here this morning? I would submit to you that the ultimate purpose of fasting is to increase our joy in God. The ultimate purpose of fasting is to increase our joy in God. Donald Whitney says this, Fasting is an expression of finding your greatest pleasure and enjoyment in life from God and God alone. That is the case when you fast with a heart that says, I love you more than I love food. Seeking you is more important even than eating. This honors God and it's a means of worshiping Him as God. It means that your stomach isn't your God but instead it's God's servant. Fasting proves that you're willing to make the desire to physically eat secondary to your desire to spiritually eat. How are we doing there, friends? Are we practicing this wonderful grace of God coupled with prayer? I hope so. 